And so turn with me to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. We'll finish the ninth chapter. We're almost to the midpoint of the book of John, which again explains why we can't do 150 chapters in Psalm. Now, eventually, I do endeavor to go through the entire book like Pastor Chuck did like seven times. And, I don't, and, I, it, and it's something that I do hope to do. I've gotten through many books. Uh, but um, again, just in this season, that's what I feel led to do. But we are going to continue in the book of John. And we'll pick it up with where we left off. And we read through verse 23 of last week. So pick it up with me, verse 24. I'll just read verses 24 through 34, and then we'll read the rest of the chapter uh, a little later in this study. Uh, Picking up with verse 24, John chapter 9. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that I was blind and now I see. That should be all of our testimony if you know Jesus. I was blind and now I see. Then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple. We are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of, unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were born completely, you're born, you were completely born in sins. And you are teaching us, and they cast him out. Let's pray again. Father, we ask for the ministry of your spirit. You've been present in the prayer, in the worship, in the fellowship. Be present in a mighty, powerful way. Set this service on fire by your spirit. Lord, pour out your spirit upon me. I need you. Lord, I would never want to step on the pulpit without your help. I'd never want to speak of the greatest treasures in the universe, your word, without your help, your anointing, And so, Lord, I pray that you'd speak to those that are online, those that are here, minister to us, comfort us, chasten us, correct us, give us courage, give us compassion, and, Lord, do it all by your grace, through your word, by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I thought of of this passage, because I was telling the story, obviously, at 830 service, and the hymn came into my mind a little later, even after I preached the first service, that hymn that says, I love to tell the story. And it says, I love to tell the story of Jesus and his love. This is one of those stories that it's just Jesus and his love and his power and his grace. And I love to tell it. We, we saw last week, let me kind of give a little review. We saw last week the amazing and awe-inspiring eyewitness account from John the Apostle, 
of Jesus when he left the temple. He had his warning, his rebuke of the Pharisees, only to leave the temple and immediately fix his eyes on a poor and desperate beggar that had been blind from the time of his birth. And as we noted, the man did not find Jesus. Jesus found him. That's true of you and I, isn't it? Amen? And he could not see Jesus. But Jesus saw him. And the same it is with you and me. We couldn't see Jesus. But if we've come to see him as our Lord and Savior, it's because he first saw us and came to us. And the compassion that Jesus has towards sinners, which is all of us, we're all born sinners, but the compassion that he has towards us as sinners, and the sick, and the infirm, and the lame, and the diseased, and the dying. It's always beautiful to behold, isn't it? That Jesus, he can do things that we can only dream about. You and I wish we could help somebody that just has a sprained ankle, much less they can't see from birth. And the mighty miracles of Jesus that only he can do, they still astound us 2,000 years later. Um, if I, how many of you had, in our house, in the course of a year, one day we'll go to all plastic cups? But it hasn't happened yet. We still have glass. We have granite countertops. And about two glasses a year, maybe three, take a fall, never to be used again, and I end up finding them in the garage in a brown paper bag, do not touch, make sure the trash man doesn't cut his fingers and all that stuff. But, um, you know, if you take something that's glass, let's say you have a nice vase, and you decide to smash it on concrete, throw it as hard as you can, it's gonna, you'll find, we actually find this on accident, we'll find a piece of glass, like, a year later, underneath the, under the, got underneath the stove or something like that. It's, it's in a million pieces. There's no way it can ever be put back together. But Jesus can fuse the whole thing. Like, every piece, you can call it from places you had no idea where, and just fuse the whole thing back together. His miraculous power. Everything he does is on that order. Everything he does is impossible for us. As he said, what's impossible for man is possible for God. And on that day that unique and unexpected day when the compassion of Christ moved from seeing the blind man to then touching the blind man. Nobody could have guessed what was going to happen next. We can only imagine the look on everybody's faces that were there as Jesus spat on the ground. And again, I told you, I'm pretty sure I want no one spit on my eyes but Jesus. We had this discussion at our family table at the house. I said, am I the only one in this house? I mean, my daughters and wife. We all agree. We want nobody else's spit. But Jesus' spit, he spit on the ground. His spit is cleaner than any medicine you could ever take. And that's not even hard to tell when you watch the commercials. Some side effects could include diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, all these things, unconsciousness, everything, death. You know, like, all right, I'm good. I'll take vitamins. Right? But he spat on the ground, and he took the dust, and he molded it into clay. And the helpless and hopeless man, um, he seemed to instantly trust Jesus. I didn't instantly trust Jesus. I, I had to hear the gospel a bunch of times, way too many times. I'm kind of ashamed of how many times I had to hear it to really trust. But he seemed to instantly trust Jesus. Not only what Jesus was saying, but he wasn't even questioning what he was doing 
why he was doing it. And you and I do that. We have in our prayer life as a lot, Lord, what are you doing? What are you allowing? But perhaps as we talked about last week, just hearing him correct the disciples that his, his blindness was not due to a specific sin. Maybe that alone helped him trust Jesus. Whatever it was, uh, he immediately obeyed Jesus and went straight to the pool of Shalom to wash out the clay, to wash out his eyes as Jesus had commanded. And he returns with the indescribable joy of brand new eyes. Can you imagine? I'm 53 now. I know I look only 23, but I'm 53. (laughs) And I can't imagine if I had never seen ever my whole life the joy I would have if all of a sudden I could see a sunset. I could see a bird fly in the sky. I could see my wife, who I think is beautiful, right? And all the things that you would take for granted, you know, if all of a sudden you had eyesight. But he returns with this indescribable joy of brand new eyesight, and people begin asking him, how did this happen? Remember what he said? Previous passages, same previous passage, same chapter. He said, a man named Jesus. If you and I can just start saying that more often in 2022 to people we meet, just a man named Jesus. Because they already know his name. They sometimes use it as a swear word. They sometimes say it on the Grammys and Emmys, but they don't know Jesus. Right? Big difference. And then he retells what took place. And then after he retells his story, he's taken to the Pharisees. Perhaps thinking, he might even thought, well, the Pharisees, they're, gonna re- they're the religious guys. These guys are closer to God than anybody. Surely they're going to rejoice with me that he's been given a truly priceless gift. I mean, really, your eyesight is a priceless gift. We might say, that work of art, that da Vinci or whatever, uh, that is a pr-. No, those aren't priceless. Eyesight is priceless. Can't be bought. But he finds that they're not so happy he has his eyesight. They're actually incensed that Jesus even attempted a healing on the Sabbath. Furthermore, they don't believe he was ever blind or that he was healed. I think the whole thing has been fabricated. Again, I'm not sure how they missed the man, but again, they were so focused on themselves. He'd been sitting outside begging for a long time because most everyone seemed to know that he'd been blind from birth. The crowds appear to recognize him. Then they call the parents who confirm his being born blind and his lifetime of blindness and the fact that he was now healed. But they, the parents were afraid of being excommunicated by these very vindictive Pharisees. So they aptly defer all the questions. They say, hey, he's old enough, talk to him. He can answer his own questions. He's of age. And as they say this, we move into the rest of the story. If you're taking notes, you see the title this morning, New Vision or Continued Blindness. New Vision or Continued Blindness. We all have that choice. And the scene hasn't changed, and neither have the hearts of everybody that's there. But as the interrogation continues, Jesus will soon reappear on the scene. The next passage we'll read in just a few minutes. He'll reappear on the scene, and there'll be a contrast of a life changed by Jesus and the ironclad resistance, the hard, stubborn hearts of the Pharisees. 
And the contrast will be clearer still than it already is. And it's wisdom for us, and it's a warning for us that we don't return to blindness. Amen? If you're taking notes, the first thing we'll look at this morning, just two. The first one I've titled, Opposite Conclusions. Opposite Conclusions. And I don't know if my battery ran low here. And that is a possibility, because I'm doing this and nothing's happening. I don't have miracle power like Jesus. <laughs> he could make it advance. No, just make it happen. I can't. I, so, did it go? All right, there we go. It's not a new scenario that we just read. But once again, the Pharisees, the religious leaders with them, they're all gathered. And they have the same set of facts. You know, people that you know that are still resistant to the gospel. People in your family, friends you have, people you've witnessed to over the years and say, you know, I've shared them exactly what God did for me. And they say, I don't see it. I don't see the need for it. I just don't get it. But they have the same set of facts as the onlookers and the witnesses and the man himself who's been healed. And that was the same situation with the man healed by the pool of Siloam back, or pool of Bethesda, sorry. The pool of Bethesda back in John chapter 5. And Jesus also healed that man on a Sabbath. And he had been paralyzed, if you recall, for 38 years. John chapter 5, the paralyzed man there. And remember Jesus said to him, take up your bed and walk. Their immediate response, remember in, back in John chapter 5, their immediate response was, it is not lawful for you to carry your bed on the Sabbath. Not, you've been paralyzed for 38 years? Praise God, let's have a party. No, it was, you can't carry your bed on the Sabbath? And their follow-up to that, back in the fifth chapter, was, who is the man who told you to take up your bed? That was on a Sabbath. That infuriated them. Their same attitude then is their same attitude now. They didn't rejoice that 38 years of suffering were ended. No, they sought to kill Jesus. In fact, back in John chapter 5, when that miracle took place, when that man had been healed, their raging desire for killing Jesus and to remove him altogether began in earnest back then. And it has continued. Nothing has changed. Their hearts are harder to the point that they will finally crucify Jesus. But they're not there yet. In Isaiah 55, long before Jesus came, hundreds of years before he came, the prophet prophesied about Jesus. He is despised and rejected by men. The world leaders that are killing Christians in China, in North Korea, in parts of the Middle East, in parts of Africa, they despise and reject Christ. They can still be saved. Many have been saved. Many have gone from Saul's to Paul's. But until that happened, and, and you and I, we made, well, I, before I got saved, I didn't despise and reject Jesus. I just kind of ignored him. Or I just kind of didn't want him. But, well, I understand, but from God's perspective, to ignore Jesus is to despise him. And still it's to reject him. Anytime we say, I'll put it off, I'll wait till my deathbed, I'll wait till something bad happens. But Jesus 
by the Pharisees. They were constantly despising him, maligning him, rejecting him. And that remains their end game, though, uh, the fact they really want to get rid of him altogether. But for now, for right now, in this part of John, in his eyewitness account, in this part of the ministry of Jesus, for now, they were stuck with Jesus. They couldn't even, remember they tried to stone him, and he just went right through them? For now, they're stuck with him. They're stuck with him healing people, loving people, teaching people, and people believing in him. Like this blind man, he really believes that Jesus is a prophet. Now they've concluded, the Pharisees have concluded Jesus is a fraud against mountains of evidence. They think Jesus is a danger to Israel, a danger to the priesthood, a danger to the temple worship. He's really a danger to their power structure. The formerly blind man, he believes, as I mentioned, he believes Jesus is a prophet. That was his own eyewitness account last week. He said, I, they said, who do you think he is? He said, I think he's a prophet. He thought he was like Elisha. He thought he was like Moses. He thought he was like Daniel, a prophet of God. And he knew he was a help. Jesus was a help to the helpless because Jesus always went to the down and out. The Pharisees went all the way around the down and out. They went nowhere near the down and out. That's why they couldn't even know that he was there. They had no compassion. But the healed man, he doesn't realize, remember he might, oh, the Pharisees, they're the closest men to God. He doesn't realize how polar opposite their views are and how far apart their views really are. So the Pharisees try a different route. Remember, they had already talked to him. If, when you pick it up, verse 24, it says in your, in your Bibles, it says, so they again called the man. This is another sit-down with him. They again called the man. They try a different route this time with this undeniably healed man. People are amazed. There's many eyewitnesses. Many know a miracle's taken place. The parents have confirmed his former blindness. So they try a different route. They say to the man, they say, listen, just give God the glory. Give God the glory. Now that in and of itself is a true statement. God should get the glory for this. Jesus is God. <laughs> and God the Father looks down and everything Jesus did, the Father is glorified. So give God the glory. If that's all they said and all they meant, we'd have something. But it's not all they said and it's definitely not all they meant. You ever talk to people and you know they mean more than they just said? You can say a lot with what you don't say or how you say it, when you say it. You can say... I think they just said something and it didn't feel like a compliment. It was a backhanded compliment, right? You know, so they go on, they say, give God the glory, which in and of itself is true. But then they tack on this. We know this man is a sinner. And I, I find it, it's just the way they said it. In other words, you ever have someone talking to you and you know, they are trying to gain your agreement so they get inclusive in the statement because they say to him, give God glory, which he would agree with, they would agree with, okay, I can give God glory. And they said, they lean forward, we know he's a sinner. Like, you know and we know. We know, right? Every time, sometimes people say to me a we, and I'm like, I'm not part of your we statement. <laughs> we don't believe, we don't agree that the earth has been here 
10 trillion years. We, we don't agree with that. We believe this, or we don't believe that Jesus is just another man, or just a good man. So, they say that to him, and this healed man, he just can't go along with how they want him to answer. I love his response in verse 25. He says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. His answer is simple. It's profound. It's sincere. Man, the world needs us, brother and sister, to be sincere and authentic. Not perfect sincere and authentic because the world right now is cynical and deceptive and definitely not sincere half the time. But the Pharisees, they didn't understand sincerity. They were very manipulative. But he was sincere in his response. And it's in deep gratitude. If Jesus has forgiven much, you're going to love much. He said that. And so it's in deep gratitude. He says, look, I, I don't know if he's sin or not, but he had already said he thought Jesus was a prophet. He already thought Jesus was a prophet. Now, they don't think Jesus is a prophet. They think Jesus is a fraud. The man who's been healed thinks Jesus is a prophet. And we know that prophets were not sinless. Elijah, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they were prophets, but they were not sinless men. They needed a Savior too. So prophets weren't sinless, but yet God still healed through prophets. Amen? God used many prophets. You'll get a chance to meet them in heaven. And they were used in a mighty way, but they were sinners just like us. But he believed that Jesus was at minimum a man of God and a prophet of God. But his, I love his answer. When they say, we know he's a sinner, right? Right? We know, we, you know, we know he's a sinner. I love his answer. His I don't know falls well short of, yup, he's definitely a sinner. He's already a little bit, he still thinks they are objective, but he's a little bit like, he's not able to just go along. My personal thoughts here, uh, he doesn't know he doesn't know who Jesus is definitively yet or how Jesus did what he did. But he's not feeling great about piling on and criticizing Jesus when Jesus just gave him his sight. Imagine if someone just out of the blue that you don't really know, because he didn't know Jesus. Someone out of the blue you've never met comes and says, man, I've been praying for you and I want to pay off your mortgage. And they do it, and then someone else comes along and says, don't you hate them? <laughs> you're you're going to be like, no, I actually don't hate them. I don't know enough about you yet that I might get there with you if you keep saying, they, they just paid off my mortgage, right? You know, so I, I kind of like them. <laughs> you know, he just got his eyesight. And they want him to pile on, and he, he's just not feeling that at all. He's not up for maligning the man who healed him. But they're trying to get him to go there. By the way, the Bible tells you how people really operate. This is, you're going to see this in your daily life. People operate on very smooth 
manipulative tactics. And so the Bible, Daniel said, the wise will understand, the foolish will not understand. You've got to be able to discern when you're watching news or having a conversation, am I getting the straight read here or not? And I think the Pharisees, I think they hear in his voice, and they see in his eyes that he trusts Jesus, which really bothers them. They're like, he, he not only thinks this guy's a prophet, he actually trusts him. He actually is glad he has sight now. Can you believe it? So they circle back in verse 26. They go back to the basics. This is kind of like, you ever seen in a movie, you've got the detective, and he's got the person in the room, and he said, let's go back from the top again. Where were you on the night? And they're looking for inconsistency. That's literally what they do. They said to him again, what did he do to you, and how did he open your eyes? He's already told this story. Everyone knows his testimony, his eyewitness account. It's not going to change. Sometimes people think if they ask you one more time what Jesus did in your life, you're, you're going to change your mind. No. I'm not going back to where I once was. So they, they see that he is, has this trust. They circle back. What did he do? How did he do it? His answer is classic. On the one hand, he's spot on. He answers them. He says, uh, I told you already, but you did not listen. Why do you want to hear? Do you want to be his disciple? Do you want to become his disciples? His answer is great. On the one hand, he is accurate. The Pharisees are horrible listeners. They hear, but they don't listen. If you're a man, you've heard this before. And if you're a husband... You hear, but you don't listen. You're hearing me, but you're not listening. They don't listen at all. His second thought, though, you got to love his childlike innocence. Do you want to be his disciple also? <laughs> like, he's just so new to the religious world. Religious people can be some of the hardest-hearted people on planet Earth. That's why we can have, like, Sharia law. That's why we can have, you know, wars that are fought over religion. But he says, do you, do you want to become his disciple also? This was like tossing a grenade their direction. He doesn't even know the way. He could have said, he could have told them he hated them, and they would have received that better than to say, do you want to be his disciple also? It's like Jesus cued him up. The Holy Spirit gave him, just, to, just say this. You'll have them reeling the worst thing they could possibly say. Immediately they have this venom that comes up in their mind uh, because their minds are made up. Nothing, nothing Jesus does is going to convince them. And so they go on and they immediately respond with the venom that's in them and they say, you're his disciple. We are Moses' disciple. They would have been, by the way, you know Moses numerous times had the people wanted to stone and kill him. One of the greatest men to ever walk there, one of the greatest leaders to ever, and the people wanted to kill him. These men would have wanted to stone Moses. They think that they would have been hanging with Moses. They would not. Just like they wouldn't have been with Abraham. Jesus said, I know Abraham. <laughs> you don't do the works of Abraham. And they don't do the works of Moses either. And after that they say, as for this fellow, this is kind of their low, give Jesus just kind of, he's just some 
dude on the street. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. Verse 29. We do not know where he's from. And it prompts a genuine marvel in this healed man's mind. And it prompts a mini spirit-given message that he still thinks in his innocence might be well received. He says, the man answers, says, well, this is a marvelous thing, verse 30. It's a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from. Yet, he has opened my eyes. He says, you guys had no idea who this prophet is. This prophet comes out of nowhere. You've no, no idea where he's from, and yet he gave me sight. No one else had the power to do this. He says, now we know God does not hear from sinners. We know God does not hear from sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who is born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Well, that's not going to go over really well at all. He thinks maybe they'll say, yeah, that's a great point. Why didn't we think of that? You've convinced us. Notice, by the way, they used a we know, and he uses a we know. They said, we know this man's a sinner. He says, he says, we know, he says, now we know God does not hear sinners. He throws a we know. Like, we're all students of the word here, they actually were. This man was not a student of the word. He, th he assumes they would know that there's no way God would use a sinner to do this. And he, in his innocence, thinks they're going to agree with him. This just angers them all the more. By the way, when you live your life in purity and in innocence, it infuriates some people. They'd rather you be vile and mean. But if you're just innocent in Jesus and just it's just flowing from your life. But you never know. Some of those same people will come back later and say, tell me more. Would you pray for me? I've got this issue in my life. It's got to flow naturally. It's got to be a work of the Spirit. He doesn't even get, I really believe, he doesn't even know that God is already using him. and just comes forth from a pure place. It's from the Lord. It's, it's anointed. It's in Scripture today. We, I could preach this. You could preach it. Because everything he says is true. But to that little message that he gives, he shut down fast. He shut down hard. It says, they answered him, you were completely born in sins. You're still wretched. Remember, their doctrine, their doctrine is the reason he was blind in the first place is because either he sinned, go back to the first part of the chapter, their doctrine was either that he sinned or his parents sinned. Or, some of the other options that we looked at, some of the rabbis taught that a baby could sin in the womb and different things like that. So at any rate, they think, look, you were born a sinner. We were born righteous. You were born to be out there with the Gentiles. We are with Moses and Abraham and all the patriarchs. And they cast him out. He is cast out of the temple. He can't worship in the temple anymore. He is excommunicated. He is removed by the temple guards kicked out. And, and they say to him, who are you to teach us? They did not like anyone even remotely teaching them 
why they hated Jesus. He taught in their presence all the time. Let's pick up the rest of it in this last portion. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, still verse 35, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said to him, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. That would make the hair on your head, if you have any hair left, stand up. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world. Those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. Taking notes, this second and last point, opposite conditions. Opposite conditions. We looked at opposite conclusions. This is opposite conditions. Jesus, who found the man while he was blind and begging, now goes and finds him one more time now that he's been belittled and barred entry to the temple. He's, his whole life, he can't see the temple. The temple was, the fact, I've said before, I really believe the temple should have been considered one of the, maybe the eighth wonder of the ancient world. The fact that it isn't has caused me sometimes to think, is it anti-Semitism or something? Because there was nothing more magnificent than the temple in the ancient times. But nevertheless, I mean, this man his whole life couldn't see the temple. He finally can see the temple. He finally can go worship in the temple. And now he's booted immediately. He just gets healed, and he already can't go in the temple. And he's been released from blindness. Now he's been banned from the temple, the place of worship for all the Jews. But the one who gave him his sight has not forgotten about him. And brother and sister, those of you online, you might be going through something. Jesus has saved you. He's not forgotten about your situation. He will come find you numerous times in your lifetime, again and again and again. And he comes and finds him. This won't be the last time Jesus comes and finds him, but he comes and finds him. He's not forgotten about him. And although the Pharisees have cast him out, Jesus will never cast him out. Aren't you glad Jesus will never cast you out? He says, no one can even pluck us out of his hands. Now, you can say, I want out, but he won't cast you out. You didn't cast this man, and you came and found him again. And something this man may perhaps have realized later, I don't know, this is just, again, uh, something that I think that he probably could have realized later, because of many of the things the disciples didn't see the first few times or many times in the ministry of Jesus, we realized that after the ascension, they said, and after these things, they remembered what Jesus said and they understood what he said or they understood a situation. They're like, oh, light bulbs go off. And this happens to us too, where we'll, we'll actually read a passage I've said before. Uh, I don't remember which saint said it, but many of the Psalms, we're going to go through the Psalms, many of the Psalms won't make sense to you until you've gone through them. 
personally in your life. In other words, you've had trials that say, wow, now that psalm means something because I know what David was groaning about because I've experienced that kind of groaning. But otherwise, you'd be like, I don't understand that. Well, things that God does in our life, sometimes the clarity comes later. And I don't know if this man will realize this later, but remember that the worshipers, the worshipers, there's the feast in Jerusalem that people would come from many countries back to come to Passover, for example, or the Feast of Booze, and they would come back. And of course, there was three feasts that all the Jewish men had to come to. And if you lived in Jerusalem, you would come to the temple on the Sabbath day. If you didn't live in Jerusalem, like, for example, up in Galilee or in Alexandria, they had synagogues. So they didn't go to the temple for every Sabbath because that would be too far of a drive. But you would have synagogues, but then on the high, holy feast days, you would actually come to Jerusalem for those feasts, and you come to the temple. So the worshipers would go to the temple to seek God. They would go to seek the living God. They would seek the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here, God, one of Jesus' names is what? Emmanuel, God with us. Here, God left the temple. At the end of chapter 8, Jesus left the temple and went and found the blind man. Normally, it's you go to the temple to find God. But when the blind man get he- got healed, God left the temple to find him. And it's actually a picture of Jesus left the heavenly temple in heaven to come and find all of us on earth. He left the temple. The Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that there's a heavenly temple up there that you'll someday see. And he left the temple to come to us. In the same way Jesus left the temple to go to the blind man. And now he comes and finds him yet again and revealed to him who healed him exactly who Jesus is while encouraging his soul. Now, we know that this man already believed that Jesus is a prophet. We've, we've underscored that several times. He believed Jesus was a prophet. He knows Jesus is the one that healed him. He knows it was his clay and his command and his washing the pool of sun. All of that, he knows Jesus did it. But now Jesus asks him, do you believe in the Son of God? And his answer reminds me of Paul's answer on the road to Damascus when, when Jesus asked, at that time his name was Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? Right? And here when Jesus says to the man, do you believe in the Son of God? He says, who is he, Lord? Both cases, Saul used the word Lord. This man, and Immediately, Saul seemed to... In, seem to know this is not just an angel. This is the Lord. But exactly who? Because remember, before Saul comes to know Christ, he would not have believed in the triune God. Hero God, the Israel, the Lord is one. He would not have believed that Jesus could be equal to the Father. That was a major, that, again, that's the roadblock with the Pharisees as well. It's not the only roadblock, but it's obviously a major roadblock. Then Saul would become born again, converted on the road to Mass, and he would realize that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are truly one, and they're always in unity, but yet God sends his Son in human flesh, and the Spirit has the Spirit's work, and the Father, of course, is the one whose will the Son and the Spirit carry out within the triune unity of God. But again, the answer is very similar. Who is he, Lord, is his response to do... Uh, do you believe in the Son of God? 
And it's not just, um, who is he? But he says, who is he, Lord? He says, who is he? And he says that he worshipped him. He doesn't just say, who is he? But he wants to believe. He says, who is he that I may believe in him? I'm sorry, back, back to verse 36. Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Not just know who Jesus is. Lots of people know who Jesus is, but do you believe in him? Amen? Big difference in his answer. It shows us the desire to fully give his life. This man couldn't see, but now he's looking. He before Just up until this point, he couldn't see at all. And now he's looking into the face of Jesus, and he's come to realize that this compassionate face that he's looking at is not just a prophet, it's the Son of God. The I am. Just as the man's question reminded me of Paul's, Jesus' answer here reminds me of his response. And Jesus says, um, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking to you. We see in John chapter 4 when the woman at the well, she said, I know that Messiah is coming. And when he's coming, he's going to show us everything. Tell us everything. Teach us everything. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. And here Jesus is saying, you want to believe in the Son of God? You're looking at him. You're talking to him. Now this man that's been healed, he's seen the Son of God face to face. He doesn't know how to respond. How would you respond? How would I respond? He says, Lord, I believe, and he worships. He worships. He wasn't allowed to worship, and this is really important to understand. He was not allowed to worship in the temple anymore, but he's worshiping in the very presence of God one of Jesus' names for himself is the temple. Jesus said, tear this temple down and in three days I'll raise it up. That infuriated them anyway because they're like, nobody could tear the temple down. It's been taking us years and Herod's been working on it forever. Blah, blah, blah. And you're going to build it back in three days. And he spoke of himself that he is the temple. And matter of fact, in heaven there won't be any sunlight or anything. Jesus will light it up. You will be in the presence of his tabernacle, of himself. So this man is kicked out of the temple to be at the feet of the living God who is the temple who inhabits the temple, amazing. He's now face to face in the very presence of God. A.W. Tozer said, I want the presence of God himself, or I don't want anything at all to do with religion. Amen. The presence of God sets men free. The religion of men makes men slaves and chains to religious structures. The Pharisees are still in their own chains, putting everybody else in chain. Jesus is, you know, he could, he could really encourage the man and said, you know, as much as I love this temple, and I gave Solomon the original blueprints, and then it had to be rebuilt by Zerubbabel, and, and all that stuff, and, but it, there's not even a temple there now. 
Jesus is saying, you have the better part being with me than being in there with them. Even the angels, by the way, were not allowed to receive worship, only the triune God. So standing here is the Son of God, the Healer, the Savior, the Messiah of Israel, to all who believe the great I Am. And Jesus receives that worship. He didn't say, hey, no, no, you're not allowed to worship me. I'm just a prophet. I'm just an angel. I'm just Michael or Gabriel. Or... No, he receives the worship because he is the living God. Jesus is God. He's the Son of God, but he's also God. Brother and sister, if we really believe in Jesus, we will become worshipers, as Jesus said in that same John chapter 4 to the woman at the well, that the Father was seeking the true worshipers. But as Jesus brings this book uh, or this, uh, this chapter and this amazing scene to a close, he gives his own commentary and his own contrast of the man who believes versus those who are resisting and hate him and refuse to believe in him. And with these closing words... We have both a blessing for those of us uh, that believe in Christ and a strong warning for those that just refuse to listen. Look at verse 39. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world. For those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. Jesus has come because judgment is coming. He did not come to judge the world, but judgment, the world's already under condemnation. That's why we already have a sin curse that gives us things like earthquakes and tsunamis and cancer and COVID. We're already under a curse, but a greater judgment is coming. Jesus, because judgment, I've come. Uh, But anyway, for judgment, I've come into this world. So God so loved the world that people could be saved, but judgment still will come one way or another. And if, uh, if he didn't come, we have no hope. Amen? If he didn't come, we're all under judgment. We're all under the perpetual wrath of God, but judgment is coming. And so he said, I've come into the world. And he said twice that he said, I am the light of the world. And John opened up the, the book of John talking about that Jesus is the light there in chapter one. Actually, the, the word light is several times in the first book, in the, in sorry, the first chapter of John. And he shined the light of truth in darkness. And he's brought light to all mankind, everyone. There's enough light for everyone to see and to be saved. Romans, Paul breaks this down in, in the book of Romans that, that all men know that the world is created. Its, it's, it's visible attributes are clearly seen, that, that everyone has a conscience. They know they've done wrong. They know they're a sinner. And so anytime someone gets to the place that they cry out and say, I know I need help. I know I'm a broken sinner. I need God. God will send someone. There'll be an Ethiopian eunuch that God will send a Philip or God will send a Paul. God will send. If there, if there is a heart that is ready to repent, God will send someone. Now, you and I still must go. Beautiful are the feet of those that bring the gospel of peace. We must be uh, bringers of the, uh, the bearers of that light. But he brought light to all mankind. And you know, by the way, you've all probably, I've had people tell me, what about that person in the other country? It's never, you know, I've already had that many times. The Pharisees could not use this one. They would not be able to say that. They, Jesus would say, look, you guys heard the gospel more than anyone. And you've rejected it many, many times. I rejected the gospel numerous times before I came to repentance. But again, God uh, has given a conscience. He's given light. It says right there in John 1, 8, light 
to all men. Everyone has received enough light. That doesn't mean that we don't need to preach the gospel, but there is light. There's enough light to see our sins. There's enough light to see we're prideful. There's enough light to see we're selfish. There's enough light to see we're unforgiving. There's enough light to see we're rebellious. All these things. And Jesus is saying, those that are blind but see the darkness of their own sin will be given spiritual sight. Say, look, I'm a mess. Jesus was always compassionate to people who said, Lord, I'm broken. I'm a mess. But those that say, I am great, all y'all are a mess. It's like watching the news these days, right? All the rest of y'all. They'll stay. What they think is sight will become deeper blindness. Deeper blindness. Those that see the darkness of their own sinful hearts and instead call it light or enlightenment. We have people changing the definitions of marriage and all this stuff. And Oh, it's enlightenment age. No, it's darkening age. It's getting worse, not better. But they'll remain in the darkness and the blindness of their own souls if they continue to reject the word of God. They reject the gospel. Jesus is making clear he's either opened our eyes, which is why we have salvation, or we're still blind and our souls are still lost. It's not a, well, I'm a third option. That's it. And the Pharisees, then they literally ask him, are we blind too? Jesus could have said, two? You've been blind the whole time. You know, it's not like you just came blind today. Are we blind also? They, they cannot fathom their religious works being nothing but what it really is, is sin and pride and bl- utter blindness. And Jesus says, your blindness remains. Your blindness is going to remain then. Willingly, they've been notified of what is sin, but they continue to call it light. They continue to call it righteousness when it's the complete opposite. So their sin remains. They, they are trying to get into heaven on their righteousness, and all their righteousness is filthy rags. That will not work for you for me, for them. Therefore, judgment remains. If your sin remains, guess what else remains? Judgment remains. But if your sin's been atoned for, now you have mercy. Now you have grace. Now you have forgiveness, which is what this blind man has received. Lord, I believe, and he worshiped Jesus because he had received atonement, not just his eyesight. His eyesight was a metaphor for what God does in our soul. Amen? That's what it really was. I mean, obviously it really was a real healing, but it was also a metaphor for us to understand. And there's a warning that at the end that, look, those that are born, um, those that are born into the light, I want to just talk to us as believers as I bring this to a close here. It's just something for all of us that know the Lord. I think there's a warning for us that um, I want to encourage us that if you're in the light, you got to remain in the light. Amen? You've got you to want to remain in the light. You've got to abide in the light. For the Lord hasn't just saved us. He hasn't just saved us to save our souls, which he certainly has. That's the number one primary reason. But also, he saved us that our vision will become clearer over time. The fruit would become sweeter over time. Um, now that I'm in my 50s, my eyesight isn't as good when I was 23. 
And I bet it won't be as good when I'm 63 or 73 as it is right now. And lately I've been looking at my Bible and my, my font getting smaller or what's going on here? And, uh, you know, I think I need another optometrist visit. And I know I do actually. And my wife says I need to see the ear doctor as well. And so all these different things. So um, the senses, they start to go down with age. But if your spiritual eyesight can actually become greater, you can actually see spiritually and should be growing, maturing spiritually, that our eyesight should be greater and should be flourishing with age. And But I want to warn us all that our flesh and the enemy wants to, drink, wants to draw us back into blindness. Don't believe it? Peter the Apostle wrote it. In the book of, um, in the book of uh, 2 Peter, he said... I'll turn there in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. But also for this reason, giving all diligence to add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sin. There's some of you here today, maybe online, and you have returned to some of the darkness of your pre-saved days. The Apostle Peter was given the word to tell you, run back to the light. That's why we call people... It's, backsliding, or we say, you, you need to recommit to Christ. Now, if you stay that way for the rest of your life, it may prove you never were born again in the first place. But on the other hand, a wise son hears the Lord say, oh, you're sliding into darkness, and says, I don't want to be there. I want to abide in the light. Amen? That if God has given you your sight, why would you go back and say, I want to put the clay back on top and go back into darkness again? Why would anyone want to do that? The, your physical eyesight and your hearing will probably get worse with age, I hate to tell you. Hopefully, the optometrist can put you in a holding pattern. But spiritually, you don't stay in a holding pattern. You're either growing or declining. And God wants our eyesight to continue to increase. And so we must, we must remind ourselves, we must preach to ourselves that I once was lost, but now I see. And all because, and only because, Jesus came and rescued you and me. And he wants us, and I'm encouraging us, let's use our spiritual eyesight first to fix our eyes on Jesus. Above everything else, use your spiritual eyesight to fix on, it's the eyesight of faith, to fix it on Jesus and to see the blind and the beggars that the world is not caring about. And those, we would see them and also see that the fields are white unto harvest and to give the light of the gospel because we're living in the light of the gospel. Amen? Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for such amazing grace. Lord, that you, you found each of us individually. We may not have been sitting outside the temple in Jerusalem, but we were sitting in a seat in a church, in a car, in our homes, wherever it was where you have come and found us. And Lord, if we've been saved, you've taken us from darkness into light. And Lord, we want to stay and we want to abide in that light. But Lord Jesus, there's also maybe perhaps in this room or online someone who's not come yet to the light. They, they've seen the light. They've seen it from a distance. 
They've heard about the light, but they've not said, Lord, I believe and worshiped. They've not come and now can say with a testimony, but a man named Jesus. I once was blind, but now I see. 